You're listening to Veeam Partner Perspectives with Eric Dockerty. Welcome to the Veeam Partner Perspectives podcast. I'm Eric Dockerty. My guest today is Michael Cade, the field CTO for Cloud Native Solutions, particularly cast in K10. Michael, welcome to the show. I'm really glad you're here. Can you share a little bit about your background and your current role with us? Hey, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me for, for starters. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a, well, a, field, a global field CTO is the posh title, but ultimately I'm a technologist and have been for the last maybe six and a half, nearly seven years. I've been at Veeam actually for just over eight years and I started off as a, an SE in the UK team. And prior to that, I was very much focused around storage virtualization at one of our distributors, uh, Avnet, which is now been folded in, but that's a much longer story. So yeah, I very much come from that infrastructure background. And then over the last couple of years, my focus has been around all things cloud native, cloud and DevOps, bit of open source in there as well. So very much this new and upcoming advanced technologies, if you will, or emerging technologies is a, is another thing that I know we we call it internally as well. So, yeah. So, I, and and it's kind of like learning on the job over those last three years around well, what is a container? What is Kubernetes? Um, what is casting K10? Why did we acquire them? Why did we look at that instead of building our own? And I, I guess we'll get into a lot of this this today, but. Yeah, so I, but I, I think it's important to note that I'm very much from that operations background, that infrastructure admin, sysadmin, vSphere admin. That I know you obviously a lot of people listen listen to this from from that angle. So that's kind of my my intro into into this. Yeah, you did you did a cool thing. I want to bring it up because I thought it was really cool. Your 90 days of DevOps project. I thought that was really cool. I followed along with that. Didn't have time to do my own 90 days. <laughs> It's on the it's on the list, but yeah, uh, why don't you why don't you explain a little bit about what that was and and then what you uh, what you gained from that? Yeah, so a big part of my role is about like helping the community or being part of the community and and learning in public. And I've done that for years around things like virtualization and little things that you find in your home lab, and you wanna you wanna repeat that, you wanna you wanna record that, whether it be video that seems to have blown up or whether it's a blog post type thing. So 90 Days of DevOps was really me filling in a lot of the gaps that I had when it came to things around DevOps and the principles and processes around that. And what I what I really it started out as a blog post on Kasten.io. So if you if anyone wants to read that, it's if you do a search for Kasten and you go, so you want to learn DevOps. If you look at that, that was the content driver for 90 Days of DevOps. And then as you do on New Year's Eve. Um, just going into 2022, I had that thing of, oh, okay, that first three months, and I've done fitness challenges around that first three months of the year, like everyone else, but mm-hmm. I thought, ah, oh, how can I incorporate this into into a work project? And we were still very much in lockdown. I travel a lot for my work, but obviously the pandemic was just, just coming to an end. So we were still very much at home. So it was like, okay, how do I build some projects that allow us to educate the community or or at least somewhat and if my, I have a motto around if it helps one person it's worth doing so hopefully it, like it's up at 23,000 stars at the moment I'm hoping that <laughs> it taught someone something and I think the biggest thing that we saw was in the in the industry is a lack of structure when it comes to learning all this stuff 
there's an overwhelming amount of new stuff that people need or want to to know about and there just isn't enough time in the day to to master them all or have a, have a good understanding so what I wanted to do was put that structure together um, and then that continued to this year as 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 a as a successful project and but instead of me doing it I went out to the community and got some subject matter experts that that know more about things than me and they wrote their own sections on things like secrets management or or OpenShift or but with a flavor around DevSecOps this time um, we'll see what happens next year. It's a hell of a lot of writing. It's a hell of a commitment. Um, I have lots of ideas, but yeah, that's that's that in a nutshell. Well, as somebody who's out in the community and, and consuming it, I appreciate it because it, it really is cool and it is motivating me because um, actually one of my things that personal, I, I actually out of spite with this test, I, I, I do want to get my CKA. I've taken the test twice and uh, did better each time. It's still not good enough to pass. And part of it is I'm not in it day in and day out. A 90 day program like that would certainly get me uh, closer to that goal. Yeah. And it's surprising as well, Eric, right? Like, so, and I hate using the term traditional, so I'm not going to, but, but Kubernetes is, Kubernetes DevOps is just a bolt onto what we've already been doing. You think about like, think of the industry today and how teams are getting short, like smaller because of riffs or because of like um streamlining or whatever whatever corporate spiel you want to call it um operational but, efficiencies yeah there you go <laughs> but um but teams are getting short smaller and we have to do more with less and the way in which we do that is we can well we can do that via via automation and devops is equals at least to a certain degree as a simplification is is a lot of automation how can i make life easier by automating things away um so, so I think I see a lot more of the people, the communities that I've been part of for many years already adopt things like infrastructure as code, understanding a little bit more about how to like configuration management and, and then Kubernetes itself is, is I'm not going to say Kubernetes is easy, but it does allow us to automate a lot of that stuff away that maybe we have to look after a little bit more in the virtualization world and and in the cloud space and definitely in the physical data center. So yeah, I think I think we we're being forced to have a better have a broader knowledge. And one of the things I say is about the the jack of all trades. And if anyone goes and looks up the actual the proper saying of a jack of all trades and master of none, but a I can't remember what the last bit is, but I'll work it out. I, I didn't you. know there was a second part. So I'll, I'll have to look. That's your project. Everybody who's listening, go look up the second half of that phrase. Everybody knows the first half. <laughs> yeah. It, so, yeah. Um, so we're obviously we're going to be talking about containers and Kubernetes for, for folks who may not be familiar or just getting started on this journey. Can, journey, can you describe a little bit about what that is and how it kind of fits in with the evolution of what we've been doing in in computing and technology for basically decades at this point. Yeah, I think I think the first thing to touch on is Kubernetes for the non like if if you if you're brand new like let's say you've been working in virtualization for the last 15 20 years, maybe physical machines before that, Kubernetes Kubernetes comes along and it's like, "Oh no, that looks that's for developers, that's not for me. I'm not a developer." I think what we have to think about is Kubernetes is based on compute storage and networking exactly the same as what we see in the other platforms that i previously just mentioned what we saw with cloud and how 
it's ultimately we're looking at abstraction layers. When we had physical machines, we had a whole compute storage and networking maybe in one box. Then we have obviously shared networking, shared um, storage, but we had one server that that did one job. Um, potentially, we tried to cram loads of stuff on it. Virtualization came along and allowed us to take that cramming of all the stuff and segregate that and abstract away that the res- the physical compute resources and enable us to have virtual machines. And then we started to have things like high availability and orchestration of v- VMs, basically with the li- the likes of um, VMware, vSphere, like um, Virtual Center. And it allows us to to have that high availability of fault tolerance and all that all the good stuff that that you need in that infrastructure. Along comes cloud, and we abstract away some of the manageability of maybe the underpinning hardware, maybe it's even the operating system of that machine. Right? It's all about abstraction. We're taking it away, but we're paying for it in some way. Whether we're paying for it with cold cash or whether we're paying for it in uh, time and effort. Yeah. Um, or responsibility as well and offloading that off. So there's obviously a, a the abstraction is great, but if you need the abstraction, then you're not going to give it, don't give it away. Don't pay for someone else to do it. Right. Um, things like databases as a service in the cloud. Um, you can absolutely go and do that, roll your own AWS RDS, but you're not going to have access to a lot of the features and functionality within the operating system to tweak memory, to tweak, tweak the underpinning. Whereas a DBA, might want to tweak those little bits that that make their database work as they as they see fit and if that's the case then maybe you still want a virtual machine or a physical machine running your database so that you can make that happen but obviously and then then you've got SaaS based workloads which completely um takes away a lot of the uh the abstraction in terms of i can just consume microsoft 365 i can just i just want my email and yeah, okay, there's some administration over users and authentication, but generally speaking, there's not much. I don't have to no longer babysit an exchange server like I did 25 years ago. Um, <laughs> exactly. 25 years ago was still, was that, yeah, it was Exchange 4.0, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. And it's amazing though, where, yeah. how, yeah. <laughs> when we talk about things like Exchange, exchange, I think there was an Exchange 2000, Exchange 2004, yes. Exchange 2007. That's a that's a long time. Like we're in 2023 now, Eric. I like know. That, that makes I me, know. that scares me. It but, makes me feel but, old too. <laughs> to go back to like what is Kubernetes? What is containerization? Yes. It just and the, the the simplistic way of putting it is Kubernetes is the is is made up of compute storage and networking. It is the orchestration for containers as well in that. Within Kubernetes, we have a control plane, and then we have the concept of worker nodes as our as our let's think of them as our hosts, our our ESXi hosts within our vSphere environment. And the control plane is our virtual center. Virtual center is orchestrating our virtual machines. Our control plane is orchestrating our containers. Which then, once you start, and I did a good set. Oh well, I did a what seemed to be a well received session at VMon. I got good. Uh, yes, feedback it for it so um and it was kubernetes for the virtualization admin so a lot of the things that we've learned over the years around high, high availability and fault tolerance and what an esxi host is what networking looks like and all of that good stuff shared storage and all of the bells and whistles that we now have within vsphere but eric you will remember a day where 
vSphere wasn't so kind and easy to set up. Um, you'll remember the days where we have to go into a command line uh, uh, and and we would have to configure things in a not-so-nice UI that we have today from VMware <laughs> or from... Um, maybe Hyper-V was always relatively UI-based. Yeah, it still had were... some PowerShell stuff in there. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly it, that. It, it was not pretty in its first iterations. No. And, and I think... So I go back to... Before before I was at before I came to Veeam and be, even before like distribution and 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 so forth around that is that I go back to consulting days where I was being billed out for anything between a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds a day, where I'm I'm just building out a three node cluster for a VMware. Now I'd be embarrassed. To, you'd be embarrassed to take that. Oh. I know. I, I used to bill four hours to install Windows and put the hardware together and install Windows NT on a server by disk. And it was just like, you know, first off, when all that changed, you know, changes your billing structure. But now you, you're doing so many better things on the end. I, I, I wanted to get back to your session that you did. Um, I'm hoping that one was recorded. I assume it was. I can't imagine they'd have you on the stage and not record it because I think that would be a great one for folks that are looking to know that this is coming and want to make the pivot or or enhance their skills beyond what they're doing today um so we'll have to i'll look for that and maybe i can put a uh, link out and when i put this out uh and share the chair because i think that 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 is a great way to start because that's one of the first things we get asked by a lot of people when we start talking about these things is they're interested but they don't know where to start to get those skills that they need understanding that the way you just talked they have a lot of the foundational skills because they're already dealing with the big three pieces that go together with it. It's just like learning another language. You already know what nouns, verbs, and adjectives are. Now you just need to know how to put them together in another language. It, it, and exactly that. And and obviously they couldn't call them the same thing. They couldn't call worker nodes hosts and they couldn't call control plane a, a V center or and and I think for good for good measure as well is that obviously VMware are the company behind virtualization or the company behind VMware and what we see, especially from a Veeam perspective, like a large majority percentage of our customer base are VMware customers as well. Makes sense with what we did there as well, and that that will nicely lead us into why K10 was bought versus built. But um, before we get into that, is that Kubernetes doesn't belong to anyone. Yes, it was Google's. Google donated that to the Open Source Foundation, uh, the CNCF, the Cloud Native Compute Foundation. And then that opened up the door to everyone having a piece to play in that and being able to air their opinions, submit their PR pull requests and, and make their own changes. So now it is truly a community-led um or, or an industry-wide-led initiative. Now, VMware have a closed door on what they were doing around virtualization. Kubernetes is, is really a an open-source bit of kit, and think of it as like the cloud operating system. We can run Kubernetes pretty much anywhere. We can choose to run managed Kubernetes services in AWS and Azure and, and Google, and they all have little variations to that. We can choose to run it on-prem, we can choose to run it on vSphere, vSphere have Tanzu, or we might use a supported model. And all of these can be paid for options or or free and open source. We can go and build our own Kubernetes cluster on bare metal if we want. We could then use something like OpenShift. You can, you can see that there's 
many, many different Kubernetes distributions out there. And that gives us a lot of freedom of choice as to what and where we run, where we run those, those workloads. But the awesome thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have with Kubernetes versus like virtualization, like I can't take a VMDK and run it without doing some process on it on Hyper-V or, or, um, or uh, AHV. But with Kubernetes, I code once and because that's a shared, you know, it's, it's a shared code base, that same code that I've created will run on OpenShift. It'll run on AKS, EKS. Is, correct me if I'm wrong though. Yeah, so 99%, absolutely. Now, if yeah. you start building a custom application that is leveraging a lot of those customized um, concepts within EKS, for example, there's a mm-hmm. lot of, they're the differences between each of those public clouds, but under the hood, it's mostly only that uh, is Kubernetes. So yes, 99% of the time, yes, that application is completely mobile between the different clouds, but there are going to be intricacies that are potentially different. For example, storage classes look different between Azure and AWS. Now, that's where K10 comes in, and that's where a lot of our uh, conversations start, actually, is around the application mobility story, around being able to lift and shift and help with that migration between one cluster to another. Maybe we started off on-prem, and now we want to go into the public cloud or Maybe vice versa. We're seeing that as well, but and we can orchestrate that. We can transform what that that application has to look like versus you having to do it all in code um, and making it happen as well. Because generally speaking, the people that are now responsible for that data aren't developers. Like maybe that application developer that created this code and supplied it off the shelf is no longer. At the company working on something else, not not into contract or something. Yeah, exactly that. So now it's down to the infrastructure admin, the ops guys, the ops people to be able to then keep this alive and move it and scale it as accordingly. So, so that's a that's a big part of of casting K10. I know we've massively just jumped into one. Of the <laughs> no, but I think we should K10 jump into well, it. Yeah. So so that's something that when we talk about the evolution of this, like the. When when containers started, they were supposed to be a an ethereal, you know, create and delete, no no damage done, scale up and scale down as needed for your for your workload. Everything was the same, nothing was stored in it. Then all of a sudden, data started getting stored in it because of um, storage drivers. Yeah, the, uh, the CSI driver. Yeah, so there's a bit of an evolution around storage within Kubernetes and uh, those that have like kept a, a close ear to the ground around Kubernetes and storage and, and stateful workloads, you would have definitely heard stateless stateless versus stateful. Um, and, and that's absolutely right. Back in the day, I want to say like seven years, six, seven years ago, Kubernetes was very much for that stateless workload. And that's great, right? Think about a stateless workload though. That will be a website static web server that is literally just going to serve up your your web page as soon as you wanted to start putting any authentication into that any cataloging any 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 stateful persistence into that then it's either using a monolith database external to your kubernetes cluster fine we have customers doing that today or they're using a pas based service such as rds as well or 
you turn that monolith database into a microservice itself and then take advantage of the scalability of that. And I think that's a big thing that's also changing right now is that before we had to choose, are you using my are you using SQL or no SQL? Let's just say SQL, for example. Mm-hmm. And then whatever we do within that business, we're going to use SQL. We're stuck with that particular SQL distribution that we chose. Maybe it was Microsoft SQL, or maybe it was MySQL, Postgres, Oracle, all of those different variants. But we generally didn't go, I'm going to have a Postgres database server here. I'm going to have a MySQL for this one. I'm going to have this for this, and I'm going to have that for that. What opens up the door to actual, let's use the right database for the right job now and scale it accordingly for that particular microservice is that we can we can spin up multiple copies or multiple different databases that are the right sort of database that should be used for that particular aspect of that authentication model or from that that storing critical information into a into a database so that's so i'm seeing this like micro micro database service or micro services around databases there's no good name for it but this is definitely a thing people are People are pushing their data, and I'm just talking about databases, but actually there's a much broader data services story when you start thinking about things like um, uh, message queues, batch processing, all the other, anything, Mm. even observability. How important is that information around like logging and understanding what's happening within yeah, security your auditing. Yeah. You can't have that. Most industries can't have that information disappear just because the container disappeared. So, and then that leads us on to, okay, so you've got all of this data and these data services. Okay. How do we protect that? And we're back to where we were when Veeam started 16 years ago it, and virtualization was just coming on the scene, that new cool kid. And all of the the Veeam competition were going, I'm going to stick an agent on them virtual machines and we'll be we'll be good to go. We don't have to innovate here. And Veeam went, hang on a minute, that doesn't seem like the right way. We're gonna we're gonna hook directly into the vSphere API. We're gonna be fast, efficient, and agentless. And the big big ticket win there was well, you now don't have to look after the the hundreds of agents for not only the operating system, but the applications that are sat on those virtual machines. Fast forward to Kubernetes and what K10 has done there is K10 becomes part of that Kubernetes API as part of the deployment. So we don't care where we're deployed. So whether it's on a particular, whether it's OpenShift, whether it's EKS, AKS, GKE, the long list continues. But we don't we don't care. We come become part of that. You can't use say Veeam backend replication for that to capture your Kubernetes cluster. Because you're going to miss such of such of the the uh, the artifacts that make up that application within inside the Kubernetes cluster, which is why we had to had to consider what we did in this space as we see the ramp up continue and even get faster as yes. we are now. And it's funny because uh, you know I mentioned earlier I'd been doing the CKA training and what they considered backup of containers and 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 your information for that. What they consider backup for it, just I saw the light of, you know, I knew why it was valuable, but in doing what they say considered was backup, I saw the light of why this is so important because it it doesn't do what you need it to do, bottom line. And that that was just, I was like, wow, now I really get why we need to be backing up and really paying attention to this data because by default, 
nothing is paying attention to the data. Yeah, and I think so. There's there's a few things to to drill down on there, Eric. Is firstly, yes. So there's native kind of native things that we can do to create a a backup. And I'm using I'm using air quotes. I know everyone can't see me, but um, but that's going to involve you writing some level of script and then keeping that up to date. And you're then the orchestration engine to that. So that's great. You could do that in VMware as well. Like write some script that triggers some sort of VADP of XYZ UUID of a virtual machine and and hope for the best. And that's going to export that. And you could use something like R copy or something to to move that copy of data from A to B. And maybe that's a backup. Restore will be a very different story. You've probably got to write another orchestration piece for that. And, so and then that person they, leaves and you're sunk because you have no idea how uh, they scripted this to work in the first place. So exactly that. And and don't get me wrong, there's open source tools out there that enable you to do some of this in a little bit more of an orchestrated way. But the, just the way that K10 simplifies this, and again, our teams are getting smaller. Uh, we're having to do more with less. We're now looking after not just a, vis- a virtualization environment. We're now looking after probably some SaaS, probably some cloud, now probably some Kubernetes. We have to look after all of this. And that's why I just want to hit the easy button, especially when it comes to data. I don't want to have to worry about it. I I just need to know that it comes back, right? Um, So on top of that is, okay, how do I then move? Okay, like like, Eric, to your example earlier, let's say that I'm on-premises and I want to go to AKS. I want to go into Azure. Um, I'll try and pick on every cloud and be be the (laughs) Switzerland rather than favoring any in particular. But so in order, I could do that potentially kind of using scripts and some some level of um, bash scripts, like automation, but it won't, it won't be, it won't be fully orchestrated. It's going to cause downtime. We're going to have a lot of, there's a lot of things to consider when you're moving, especially a large microservice application. I mean, if you're just moving one container, that's a different story. That That's the easy part. When you start getting the complex microservices that are very much out there, that becomes a very difficult thing to change. I've, I've mentioned storage classes as one example, and you'll see us. We do loads of demos on that because it's the easy one to show. But think about basically we can we can transform what that whole application looks like, whether it's scalability, whether it's ingress, whether it's um, the storage, whether it's running a particular container version or version of a particular service. We can make all those changes on the fly as we recover that or import that into another cluster. So I think that's another thing to to consider. And then finally, probably the biggest one of all, like I just mentioned around the databases, and I appreciate that not everyone is okay with throwing all of their data into Kubernetes, especially if you aren't skilled up on Kubernetes or you you're maybe don't have all the trust you you can in in Kubernetes. So you want to stick with that VM model or maybe even that PaaS-based model. So what K10 can actually do as well, and I know we've got Veeam Backup for cloud products that do this as well, but we're thinking about the application within the cloud native space. We have to think about the whole picture. So yes, I might be running some stateless workload within Kubernetes, but that stateless workload, like I mentioned before, for authentication, for 
stock for catalogs for blah 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 whatever that might be is leveraging a database or a data service external to that that cluster so i want to be able to protect all of them at the same time so that when i restore they're all going to look the same when they come back they're consistent so there's two elements to that is one we can back up stuff that's outside of the cluster so an rds rds instance for example being used by that application and then secondly being able to do that in an applicant application consistent way um again these databases are the same as what we've used for the last what <laughs> 70 years a database still it has has moving transactions and if you decide to take a backup and then transactions are still running then i guarantee you you will lose some of those transactions you won't you won't be able to get a clean copy of that data which is why we have to think about consistency if you're familiar with Veeam, you know that we've worked very hard on like VSS and consistency from a virtual machine point of view. Exactly the same when it comes to Kubernetes or exactly the same when it comes to cloud-based PaaS models as well. So we have that, that capability in an open source project that we maintain called Canister, which is built into K10 as well, that enables us to do that. So we have two ways of being able to protect data outside of the cluster, which which other open source tools and other projects don't have out there in the wild, as well as that application consistency, which is why K10 is just that that bit further ahead when it comes to protecting these workloads within within Kubernetes. Yeah, and that's and that's the the brilliant piece is is that it is looking at it holistically, not just well, my you know, again, no, <laughs> go in, go into a meeting where you're doing recovery and say, well, but the containers are up, I this database wasn't my problem. It's everybody's problem if the app's not running, and that's really what you have to look at. Yeah, I think Eric to double down on that it is I'm seeing more and more like just so I get to go to KubeCon. KubeCon's the kind of biannual. We have two. We have we have two KubeCons each year. Actually, there's a third this year, one in China. But Ooh. generally speaking, early in the year, so April time, we have KubeCon Europe. Then there'll be KubeCon China. I think around August September time. And then October, November time will be KubeCon North America, and that's going to be in Chicago this year. And I've been going for a couple of years now, and it started off developers. Developers do not care about backup. They see, in fact, developers don't care about storage. They see the database as the storage, which is no different. Me and Eric can go on for hours talking about <laughs> the iceberg underneath that, like the yes. storage layers, the LUNs, the, the NFS shares, the the snapshot and the bells and whistles around different storage arrays and what you what you have available to you around fiber channel HBAs and all of that good stuff right um but a database a, a developer doesn't care about backup so right. them first couple of kubecons were very much like it was great for our engineering team because our engineering team are also there on the booth and they're talking to other developers about how they're developing microservice microservices apps because K10 is a mm. microservice. Yes. Fast forward to that. We just had KubeCon in Amsterdam this year, and we're starting to see like existing Veeam customers come and have a chat with us. Oh, it's not day two though. It's day twenty-eight, and we've deployed this application into into Kubernetes. Now I'm responsible for all that data in our whole environment. I need to make sure that that's protected. And then in between that, we started to see platform engineering, like just some sort of name that has been given now to 
the the new sysadmin, if you will, like the sysadmin that has to look after everything. Let's call them a platform platform engineer now, and you'll get a pay rise and a nice new fancy <laughs> title. All good, but your responsibilities are going to be the the same. The data responsibility is still going to reside there generally. Um, so yeah, that was that's just an interesting evolution that I'm seeing as well out there in the field. And that's that's interesting to hear and great to hear because uh, you know again the audience for this is a lot of our traditional partners who are data center centric. So data center folks, this is this is coming into your scope and your territory. Um, it's another opportunity for you to expand your skill set as well. Um, you know, the data center is never going to go away, just like tape is never going to go away. We've been talking about the demise of tape for decades, but it's the same thing. Data center, traditional data center is never going to go away. But here's another set of skills to to get yourself up to speed on because you're going to have a responsibility for it. Just because you don't code it doesn't mean you're not going to be involved in it. You didn't code Exchange either, yet you back it up every day. Yeah, and I think those concepts, Eric, are exactly the same, right? So once you get over the the fundamentals of or the break or the foundations of Kubernetes and what it does, ultimately it's a platform that enables us to run an application or a set of applications, whether that be a database or whether that be a, a web server, exactly the same as what we see in virtualization today and cloud and everywhere else. And none of them are going away. I'll double down on that as well a little bit, Eric, because infuriated me when I started learning this and I was seeing um, containers versus VMs everywhere. If you, in fact, if you do a if you do a Google search, if everyone does a Google or a Bing search um, of containers and VMs, the whole first, at least the first two pages comes up as containers versus VMs. And they were never a versus. They should never be a versus. They are very complementary but equally, VMwares aren't going. Sorry, virtual machines aren't going away, and containers are just going to enable us to do more and maybe a little bit quicker. But VMs aren't going away, that's for sure. Like physical machines never went away. Right. Like never went away. Now going back to the backup concepts again, I'll just say that application, that database is is still a database. It's probably got some pretty important data on there. So we have to consider how we how can we achieve that three two one rule like. Um, I would love to say that Veeam coined this three two one rule. It wasn't. It was a photographer that that said about keeping copies of data, yep. photos, or 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 at least um, the uh, negatives and film, uh, yeah, um, yeah, in in multiple locations and different copies of that. But that same concept applies for Kubernetes. Kubernetes is great, and it will keep your container, your application up and running, and it will spread that over a a, a bunch of worker nodes. But one thing it will not do is protect that data. Like the cloud, it will not protect your data. Um, like virtual machines in VMware or in Hyper-V, it doesn't protect your data. That's your responsibility, regardless if you're in a managed service or whether you're in a um, whether you've rolled your own. The yep. data is important. Like that's going to be again that that concept doesn't change. I've done no. three, two, one. Um, sessions over there and it, 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 it you're right platforms are availability data and then data integrity has nothing to do with platform availability it that that is the end consumer or or sir or department or or you know the operations team's responsibility no nobody's providing that unless you sign up for an extra service nobody's providing that by default yep 
absolutely yeah yeah and it's interesting because another there's a couple things i want so i wanted to circle back because you were talking about using uh k10 for migrations and there was a great story about how we use that for migrations for a company over in europe that um was looking to do what was going to be a rather large migration. it wasn't even going from from like uh, on-prem to aks or eks they were just looking to switch versions of the same platform and the number of hours that this saved if you if you can give a little info on that that would be awesome yeah yeah so so when we talk about mobility mobility means a and, and this is across the whole Veeam portfolio, right? We've spoken about, well, in fact, there's been iterations of this. I remember speaking about portability of data years ago, about how we could take a virtual machine and send it to EC2 and things like that. When it comes to Kubernetes, like that mobility could mean like actual recovery. It could mean migration. It could mean cloning. It could be just a test and dev. I just want a copy of that data and I want to clone that and I want to use it and then I want to throw it in the bin. Um, and it and it could be as simple as, okay, if I've got 100, let's say I've got 100 worker nodes. So I've got a 100 node cluster and I'm running on Kubernetes version 1.21. Do I really want to manually go through and update all of those 100 nodes or... Would it be actually more efficient for me to just restore my whole workload into a brand new cluster and then delete the old cluster thereafter? So that's another way of being able to kind of automate and orchestrate away the burden of updating infrastructure and having that having that overhead of, of having to do that. So it doesn't ne- necessarily mean to be I'm going from on-prem to cloud because of size, space, et cetera, speed, scale. But it could be that oh, I just want to get onto version 1.2.2 or or one of the 1.2.6, which 1.2.7, which is the latest one now. So that, and we've got some amazing customers that are doing some pretty incredible things. Yeah. Another one in Europe actually is how they're using so they have they're they're an AI. Oh, everyone's an AI company at the moment. Um, they're a machine <laughs> learning company. So basically, they are um, they're so they're using K10 in the data science group. And what they're doing is they've got they're we're casting K10 is being used to protect their model, and then they're running that against their data sets. So we can clone that several times that then hits the hits the model. So wow, it's not just it's not just backup anymore, which well, which is kind of funny for Veeam too, because that's what we, it's not just backups, and it's data. It's using that data to you know more you know more than yeah, just for how restoring do we do more too. With this? Like, more, again, yeah, with the same data. Yeah, yeah, if I go if I go back to my thing like five, three, four years ago, my focus was about leveraging data. How can we yeah. how can we do more with that? How do we enhance like things like data labs? And this it hasn't changed. Like there's still that that passion to to uh extend what the veeam available what, what the veeam platform has 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 to offer there yeah yeah i wanted to bring up too because we had an example locally to me of a, a k10 uh deal where we were talking to a company and they said yes we're definitely interested but it's a next year purchase because we're still in development right now 
And again, like you said earlier, developers don't care about backup. We got a call two weeks later saying we need this now. Um, we lost all of our data in, in our dev environment and we've ground to a halt. We can't recover it. We realize now what we had to do, we had to basically start over again with the entire dev testing and everything. So they ended up buying it in development to cover the dev. Now, the nice thing is you buy it in development. Guess what you do? You get it perfect there. There's ways, you know, now you can migrate things to production. You can test, you could, if you need to start scaling or testing things, you restore, you restore production back to a dev environment. Same as we do, like you said, with, with virtual labs and data labs right now, we can, you know, you need to test patches and updates and hot fixes. You can easily do that. Yeah. I should put an asterisk on that. Developers don't care about backup. Until. Until they lose data. <laughs> or the other one that I, I spoke to someone, and this wasn't an existing, uh, they're not a customer, but they were saying about how they, as a dev, if they need to do something, if they need to understand something about the data set, the database, that they've got, they just they just uh, hook into the production database. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. I was like, <laughs> oh, right. And you work sure, for you bet. massive company. I was like, yeah, you probably probably shouldn't. Like, how about use like I can t I can I can write you a script. It seems yeah. easier, and I would feel like I use their service. I feel like it would be better if I write you a script on how you could clone that natively using Kubernetes tools, or use us, and we could do it. But yeah, that yeah. this this sort of stuff happens, and and anyone that is familiar with a data like with the database, especially SQL. It's very easy to drop databases oh, just yeah. accidentally, just yep. make a mess of it, encrypt it, <laughs> make a mess. Yeah. 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 And you're not a very popular person at that point. It's like get that uh, database 100%. recovered and then get to the exit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting, you know, that uh, the, the, the thought process of, of dev uh, backup versus not. I'm glad to see that people are, are starting to get their heads wrapped around how important this is. Now, from the partner side, you know, it, these conversations are pretty new. If, I, if I'm a partner and I'm going into meetings, first off, who should I be talking to? We talked about platform engineers. If I was going through and searching for the right people to try and talk to, I'm guessing it's not the same traditional data center backup operators and, and directors of data center that we were talking to. I actually think it depends. Um, I think it will be. Um... I think at the moment, maybe developers have a bit more percentage on they're potentially taking the credit card, they're spinning up these clusters, they're using it to deploy. But slowly and surely, it's, he it's heading back to the traditional, and I'm, I, again, I'm using air quotes to, to not offend, but it's, 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 it's landing on the sysadmin, it's landing on the, the infrastructure admin. So it, it really depends. And I think that that's shown from a from a custom point of view. If we speak to our sales guys, if you speak to Veeam sales guys, it all depends. I would not rule it out as a, a complete. This is not a complete different persona conversation in all aspects. And I think the further down the line we get, and the further away from, just to put another analogy on, like at the moment, I feel like we're very much at Kubernetes. It, Kubernetes. 1.27, which is the latest release, is around that ESXR or ESX 3.5 day. Hmm. And Good I feel like you. as soon as we 
take away and we simplify some of the complexities that we have within Kubernetes, the deployment, the UI, is there going to be a UI, a dashboard or something around that? <laughs> then I feel like the sysadmin group, the operations teams will take more of a responsibility about deploying and looking after what that looks like. So that'll be more of the people that are in the data center today. It'll be us that have to have to look after this stuff versus this new persona. I don't think that's happening. I think we're evolving. The sysadmin is evolving to be more DevOps, more platform engineering focused anyway. Um, and I think the developer needs to concentrate on developing versus trying to spin up things that they potentially don't always get involved in around compute storage and networking. That, and that makes sense. I was just going to say, it's like, it would be like in the old days, if they were going out and then procuring and, and sizing switches, routers, servers, and, and storage arrays for their app. They, they never did that in the past. They just said what kind of resources they need. And then the team goes out to get the best things, you know, the, the, the proper people go get the hardware for them. So it's not really different. It's just that it's all mostly digital at this point. You're not really touching those things. But it, again, you get down enough layers, depending on where you are, you're still plugging things in. I mean, you know, it's the old, you know, the cloud's just somebody else's computer. It's like the, you know, in a lot of cases, it's just, you know, containers are things running on in the cloud on somebody else's computer or in your pre, uh, on your own prem in somebody else's computer that's managing it, depending on what you're doing. Um, so it really, it's interesting to hear that it's kind of coming back that way because it's always been when we've been out in the field talking about it is get, get to the DevOps guys. You're going to have to break out of your talking to the people you're comfortable talking to. So it's interesting to hear that you're seeing it coming back to those people they're talking to. So it sounds like kind of keep talking about it to that group and if they and get them to make introductions so that you can start talking about what's coming down the pike because maybe they're doing development. And you know, sometimes the the data center ops team is the last to find out about it until it's dropped on their lap too. So they yeah, don't even exactly. know. So it's 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 also not only talking at that level, but talking up a level or two. Um, which is something we should all be striving to do anyway, to find out what is the strategy for the company, not just what's going on today, but what's going on in, in three to five years. Where do you see things going? Um, and that's, I think that's a valuable conversation to have. Yeah, I think I think there's that element, and and you'll know the 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 companies that are are doing this. I think we're still in that awareness phase, awareness of this is this is a thing. There's billions of dollars been plowed into Kubernetes. It's not going the way of open OpenStack or anything like that that we've seen seen before. We're already, I think we're on seven years of Kubernetes or maybe even eight now. Um, yeah, something like that, seven or eight, yeah. Um, and like the, the amount of investment from major tech companies, major companies, just financial, financial companies, um, it's not going away and it's definitely coming as a first class you don't and you don't need to listen to to this to get that like you can go and look at the cncf <laughs> survey year on year and you can see the growth that they're seeing in people adopting this um as well yeah i think um i think we're definitely in that awareness phase i mean if you don't you only know what you you only know you don't know what you don't know so if you choose to build a project and you only know virtualization or physical, then guess where the infrastructure is going to lie for that? It's going to go there, right? Sure. If you know about cloud, if you know about a SaaS option, if you know about Kubernetes, then that opens up the door to choose choose the right horse for the for the race. Mm -hmm. 
and the more horses that you've got in the race, you're you're going to win, right? You're going to yep. pick the pick the right one. So, I, I, I'm yes, I'm a proponent for for Kubernetes, but I equally like you're not you're not going to convince me to start moving a monolith application into Kubernetes and start protecting it just because just because Kubernetes is cool. Um, no, that's not that's not the answer. Um, but skipping a step, because really, if you have a large monolithic app like that, you should be trying to break it down to see how you can make it, in essence, you know, services, you know, our serverless or microservices. How can you break it down so it's not that gigantic app anymore? It, exactly that. And that might be starting actually upside down with the database, or at least what I've seen. <laughs> so that monolith, that monolith to container, there's no nice P to V that we saw from a physical to virtual. Um so yeah, there's there there's a there's a rearchitecture that needs to happen, yeah. and that is happening. But also, developers and operations teams don't have the skill sets to to get into that as well. So, but I know people are looking for cheats because I've seen things online like, "Can you run Windows in, in a Kubernetes container?" And usually, the first answer is after that is, "Why would you want to?" Um, but that's probably what they're trying to get at. Is I want to take this big app and, and be able to say it's container based now, but it's still the same big app. It, it, there's a step, and again, that that's with cloud too. I mean, we've seen it, and that's part of the reason that a lot of companies I think still spend more money than they plan in the cloud. Is they just took their physical or their VMs from on prem shifted them up and they're paying a ton for them. They didn't do that rewrite to take advantage of the efficiencies that you can get from going into different architectures. Uh, yeah, exactly that. Just to touch on that as well around, yeah, a lot of people, and rightly so, the pandemic hit, the four walls of the data center got blown apart. We had to then service all of our employees, regardless of how many hundreds, tens, hundreds, thousands that might have been. We were now leveraging the internet well and truly out there like the home network was now an extension of our data center so we saw a load of people move their lift and shift virtual machines physical machines into the cloud and now we're now we're seeing so much about finops or um think about cloud costs i actually just put something up on linkedin this week an article that i wrote about kubernetes cost management and i've got some other broader cost optimization stuff that i'm that i'm writing at the moment as well um because okay if that you might like and you might have a massive bill that says oh that's 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 gonna that's gonna break the bank a bit and that's a reason a, a strategy to bring it all back on premises and it might be your offices might be full of people again that might be great but i would not be down and out on the cloud it just means that you haven't leveraged it the way it should be leveraged Yes. Because like I was saying about, like, do you really need the full control of a, a EC2 instance on AWS? That's, I've mentioned both now. Um, and uh, uh, or, or can I offload that to a database as a service or a PaaS-based offering and the same for files and the same for other other areas of my business? Can I offload and abstract and re-architect that away? Because I think... Whenever we look at the term like re-architect or re-platform, I think that there's a there's an alarm bell that goes off in especially in, in my at least in my head to begin with, Eric. That, that alarm bell goes off and goes, well, that sounds like hard work. Like, but actually, yeah. when we think about it, all we're doing that database migration has to happen. That's, and I'm not saying you're going from Microsoft SQL Server to Postgres. I'm saying go from Microsoft SQL Server to Microsoft SQL Server. The only thing you're offloading is 
having to manage ultimately the agent, the operating system of that system. Yeah. If you don't need to take it away and and pay for that that service to happen. Um, so I think I think what we're going to see, we're going to I've seen some people bring a lot of those workloads back on prem, but equally I'm seeing just as many, if not more, people rearchitecting, replatforming taking advantage of the of the cloud and the cloud-based services and not just using it as a as a nice way of uh broadening the internet capability or the the bandwidth and the scalability um yeah expanding the walls of your data center without having to expand the walls of your data center exactly doing the same things you can't keep doing the same things um but that goes back to that education and constantly learning and updating your skills um which is always important and and you're a great example of, of that because I mean, just the conversations we've had and what I know you I've been with Veeam now for over four and a half years and, and what I knew you for doing when I started versus what I know you for doing now is so different. It's just another, yeah. another way of saying never stop learning, which is one of my mottos that I give, you know, everybody said, ask the question all the time, what, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? That's my advice to anybody that's out there. Never stop learning. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, like, whether you're a sysadmin, whether you're an infrastructure admin, whether you're anywhere like yeah just keep keep and and we have so much content out there and i'm i just mean the 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 community mm-hmm. you just have to go like youtube is a great resource i'm completely addicted to it since the pandemic free resources there is no reason why you can't learn something like go and go and learn a little bit more about terraform for example and that's not nothing to do with veeam Apart from you could use it to deploy your deploy <laughs> your stuff, good. but but go and learn what it does, and yeah. I guarantee it will save something within your within your business. As in, it will save you some time more than anything. I really appreciate you taking the time today to to have this chat. It's always great to to speak with you, and I, you know, this has been a great conversation, and it's it's a little different than a lot of the conversations we have because usually they're very traditional. Here's that word again, beam centric <laughs> uh, type conversation. So this was nice to have a different conversation, but one that I think that everybody needs to hear. So thank you for doing this with me today. No worries, Eric. Looking forward to coming back and, and making it more beam, beam heavy around Caston when, we, when we're seeing a load more out there. This has been Veeam Partner Perspectives with Eric Doherty. Awesome. Thank you for listening. Thank you.